This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Today we're talking with Mike Horton, J. Gresham Machen, Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California, where he's taught since 1998. He's co-host of the Whitehorse Inn, editor-in-chief of Modern Reformation Magazine, and the author of many books, including The Christian Faith, A Systematic Theology for Pilgrims on the Way, and most recently, The Gospel Commission, Recovering God's Strategy for Making Disciples, which we're discussing today on Office Hours. These titles are available through the bookstore, and we have a new address for you. It's bookstore.wscal.edu. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Well, you've written a book, The Gospel Commission, Recovering God's Strategy for Making Disciples. What is it that motivated you to write this book? The Great Commission and unpacking it has been an interest of mine just sort of on the side. And then as I was writing these uh, books, Christless Christianity and the Gospel-Driven Life, I thought, really, I need to unpack some of the implications of the commission then that we're called to take to the world. So Christless Christianity focuses on the problem and tries to make the case that we are facing what sociologist Christian Smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism across the board in many, many, many churches. Then the second book, The Gospel-Driven Life, is focused more on the truth that uh, binds us together as Christians, the gospel, and that the gospel is not just something that we believe and then we pack it away in the closet, but it's something that informs, drives, motivates, shapes our lives and our ministries. So this book, The Gospel Commission, was, okay, now what? We not only have to get the gospel right, we have to get the gospel out. And in my view, just as we have message creep, kind of moving away from the gospel, redefining the gospel in all sorts of different ways, we are engaged in mission creep as well. And so this book is an attempt not to just be critical, but to talk about why the Great Commission is so relevant for us today. We've heard it a million times, but why do we keep moving away from it? And what does the Great Commission mean for the worship and witness of the people of God? What is mission creep? From where did you get that language, and what do you mean by it when you apply it to the Gospel Commission? Well, it was a, a coined by a journalist for the Washington Post a number of years ago. You remember when President Clinton sent in a force for a peacekeeping mission in Somalia. And quickly, a peacekeeping mission turned into a situation where U.S. forces had to actually engage offensively in military actions. And uh, the Washington Post called this mission creep. Basically, it just means you start out with a well-defined mandate, and then because of the situation on the ground, you begin to change that. And small changes lead to bigger changes, and it just sort of becomes a sinkhole. That's what I see in the Christian world today. We just have all sorts of interests and distractions, often very good things. But many churches are taking their eyes off of the ball. The very basic, simple, meat-and-potatoes mission statement that Jesus gave to his church for all time. 
One of the distinctions you make in the book that I found very helpful is a distinction between the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. What does that distinction mean, and why is it important? Yeah, uh, these are like two buckets. Jesus was asked by the lawyer, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, you know the law, don't you? And he says, "Uh, yeah, but, you know, what's the one thing? Jesus said, well, the law is summarized in this, love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, heart, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Well, Jesus wasn't making that up. Moses said the same thing. And so this is a summary of the law. The law calls us to love God and our neighbors in very concrete ways. And if you go back to our catechisms, of course, Reformed, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Anglican catechisms, they all go through the Ten Commandments and apply them in very concrete ways, as indeed Scripture does, to our lives. So, one of the things they often talk about is how we're to treat others. And so, the the idea that Reformation theology is only concerned with a vertical relationship with God that has no horizontal effects in the world just doesn't fit the facts— The great commandment remains God's moral will for our lives as Christians. And so there is still a mandate for Christians to love their neighbors, to serve them. There's still a mandate for Christians to be concerned about defending the life of the unborn, defending the lives of those who are born, who are marginalized and are victims of injustice. But this is something that all people, not just Christians, are called to. The Great Commission was given just to the church, and it's a much narrower mandate. And so in my view, you have two tendencies today, Scott. On one hand, you have people who say social justice just means socialism. You know, it raises literally red flags. Christians ought not to be concerned about social justice. Well, that just means that you're not concerned about the second table of the law. Then on the other hand, there are those who collapse the Great Commandment into the Great Commission as if... The church, as an authorized institution, is commissioned to change the world in its civil form. And I'm trying to drive a ship between those two uh, dangers and see our calling as churches as different from our callings as Christians. The church is called to preach the word, administer the sacraments, and oversee church discipline. That is the Great Commission. Christians are called to do a lot besides that. They're called to be parents. Churches aren't called to raise our children. Parents are. Parents are called to be good neighbors, to volunteer, you know, as they choose freely in their Christian liberty, volunteer for any number of causes and support any number of causes. But the church has no authority in that domain. When you describe the Gospel Commission, you speak in the book in two categories. First of all, in terms of announcement, and secondly, you talk about Jesus as missionary. Why is it important to keep the announcement character of the Gospel Commission in place? And then we'll come back and talk about Jesus as missionary. I've been asking people lately at conferences to, in unison, repeat the Great Commission. And so they'll immediately start out, as I would too, normally if someone asked me to do that, Go, therefore, into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, two things. Number one, we all know the cheesy principle, whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. 
there's usually something that comes before it that's pretty important. And secondly, there is. It doesn't begin with a command. It begins with an announcement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, into all the world. Once again, it's easy to take the gospel for granted and then just get to the interesting commands and precepts and principles for living. We do the same thing with mission and evangelism. But it's important for us to see that the church's mission is grounded in God's mission, which he fulfilled in Jesus Christ. From Westminster Seminary, California. When you talk about Jesus as missionary, there was an older way among some liberals at the turn of the 20th century where they made Jesus into the first Christian. So that's not what you're doing. What does it mean to call Jesus a missionary? Yeah, in fact, a lot of that rhetoric that you heard in Protestant liberalism, you now hear in evangelicalism, such as continuing the incarnation of Christ that we are living the gospel or even being the gospel. One of the phrases I hear thrown around a lot is, God is calling us to participate in his work of redemption and reconciliation of the world. Well, no. (laughs) The mission that Jesus accomplished was a mission only he could accomplish, and he finished it. It is a completed mission. We're not participating in the work of redemption or reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. And he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, namely the message that he has just delivered. Our mission is based on Christ's mission. Our mission is not an extension of Christ's mission. Christ finished his work, and now the church is called to do a different work, namely to go out there and proclaim this to the whole world, Just as an ambassador is different from a king, just as a herald is different from the conquering general, the church is merely an ambassador taking this message out to the world. We are not ourselves the victors. We are the ones who announce the victory. Who commissioned the church, and why does it matter that Jesus— the Savior who suffered and died and was raised. Why does it matter that he commissioned us? (laughs) Well, he rose from the dead, and I haven't, you haven't. We've got to be really careful when we get into a pulpit or we get into a room with local elders and deacons or broader assemblies of the church, that we don't forget that we are, again, the ambassadors and not the king. Christ is the Lord of the church. He delivered a mission statement. He created, he crafted a mission statement for the church. And he's the one who rose from the dead. He's the one who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He didn't go on to say, and I'm going to pass that, spread that authority around to the rest of you so you can make up whatever mission statements you want and tack them on. Jesus has the authority to save, therefore he has the authority to rule. And he, as the king of his church, has told us what the church is to do, how he is going to continue his work as prophet, priest, and king through the means that he has entrusted to his ministers. There's a lot of discussion, and has been for a long time, about what it means to be a disciple. Why is that question so complicated, and how do you answer it? Yeah, if you go into a lot of uh, Christian bookstores today and look for the section called discipleship, you'll see rows and rows and rows. But I wonder how many books you'll come to 
that will talk about the preaching of the Word, the administration of the sacraments, and church discipline as the means that God is using to make disciples. I think it'll be a while before you find that book on the shelf. Rather— Well, if I can interrupt, you could find it. It's a volume called (laughs) The Gospel Commission— And it's written by Mike Horton, well and it's done. available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, bookstore.wscal.edu. That's admirable. Carry on. Uh, I do think that that's one of the reasons that I did write the book. I'm very concerned that today people are rightly hungering for discipleship, and they're asking, you know, is there more to this than just signing on the dotted line? Is there more to this than go into all the world and make converts? Sure, yeah, discipleship is uh, at the heart of the Christian life. But what is discipleship? We take for granted that we know what that means, but I think that we need to correct some of our views of discipleship, what it is. We certainly need to correct some of our views of how disciples are made. Because not only do we see in the Great Commission the methods very clearly laid down for how disciples are made— preaching the gospel, baptizing them, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. But in the book of Acts, we see that. How were disciples made? Well, it's very clear. They gathered regularly for the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers, word and sacrament ministry. Throughout Acts, we see that played out on the ground. This shouldn't be hard for us. It's a very clear map in Scripture, and yet today, people are so individualistic And churches are putting such a burden on people to become self-feeders and to find resources for growth in their spiritual life. And it's all law. It's not really based on the gospel. And the great thing about the means of grace that Christ appointed for his church is that they're means of grace. They're not, first of all, things that we do for our Christian growth, but things that God does for our Christian growth, to which then we respond. That's a very different orientation, I think, than you get with a lot of the discipleship stuff that we have on offer today. When we come back, I want you to answer maybe a difficult question, and that is this. Does the confusion about the Great Commission and mission creep and the Great Commandment, does it boil down in some respects to the way people view the visible institutional church and the metaphors they choose by which they think of and identify the visible church and relate it to mission. And I want you to answer that question right after this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. I do think that it has a lot to do with our view of the church Whenever people see terms like communion of saints, the body of Christ, the household of faith, family of God, whenever you see these terms for the church in Scripture, very often our evangelical brothers and sisters will 
just as a default setting, imagine that that is the invisible church. And so all of these high and exalted and intimate terms for the church as the body of Christ are invisible. In other words, it refers to all of the truly born-again people. But that's not how it works, actually, in the New Testament. It's not how Reformed churches have interpreted it. In each of these phrases that we find in the New Testament, there is an invisible and visible aspect to it. The visible church is the body of Christ, but it's also the invisible body of Christ. The church now, as we see it, is a mixed body. Yes, it's the body of Christ in its visible expression, its visible form, but it has elect and reprobate people in it. Well, the body of Christ, as God knows it, doesn't have any reprobate in it. Never has, never will. They're all elect. But when we go to church, we are going to church not to find the elect. We're going to church to find those who have made a profession of faith and their children who are cared for in the same body that nurtures us. And that body is created by the ministry of word and sacrament. It's not created by the individual faith of every regenerate person. Rather, faith and regeneration are the effect of that means of grace ministry as the gospel is proclaimed and ratified. So I do think that there is a kind of almost Gnostic hyper-spiritualism among most Protestants today that downplays that which is visible, that which is creaturely, that which is of this world, and tends to think very much in terms of the spontaneous, the exciting. The Holy Spirit works not through gradual, ordinary, everyday means, but rather he works immediately and directly in my heart without any kind of instrumentality, especially any kind of human, creaturely instrument. That's more Plato than Paul. That just doesn't come out of the Scriptures. So we've got to work very carefully, I think, to deal with some of the underlying default-setting issues that a lot of our brothers and sisters have on these questions. It's not just a question of taking the means of grace more seriously. As you suggest, it's something deeper than that. Closely related to the way we view the visible institutional church is the question of how we relate the gospel and the church to the kingdom. And one of the metaphors to which Christians have been attracted for a very long time, since the early Middle Ages, or at least at a certain point in the Middle Ages, and to which many American Protestants are attracted, is the metaphor, the image, the picture of conquest. Tie together briefly for us the gospel, the kingdom, and conquest. How should we think of those things relative to the gospel commission? Yeah, I spend the first couple of chapters really going through a kind of biblical theology, tracing the history of redemption, looking especially at this theme of exodus and conquest. These two major epochal points in Israel's history are the exodus, where, of course, Israel is brought out of Egypt and delivered, redeemed, and then you have the conquest, where they are called to cleanse the land of Canaan of all of the idolatrous nations and establish the reign of God, enjoying the land flowing with milk and honey. In between that lay a vast desert. They had to cross through a pilgrimage. Okay, so you have Exodus, pilgrimage, conquest, 
Now, you look at the disciples, even John the Baptist, and they see the Messiah coming to do a repeat of that. So it's basically to reestablish that covenant that God made with Israel as a nation. In other words, the Sinai covenant. Whereas, in fact, the prophets tell us that he's coming to bring the Abrahamic covenant. Of course, to fulfill the Mosaic covenant, but also to usher in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which is the gospel for all nations. You see John the Baptist even kind of shaking his head on this at a couple points. You know, he uh, is expecting Jesus to do the things that many of the Pharisees were expecting Jesus to do. And when Jesus didn't, here he is sitting in prison, sitting in jail. Hey, when's the inauguration? Here I am sitting in prison. I think my head's going to be removed from my body in the morning. He sends his disciples out to Jesus to ask Jesus, okay, cut to the chase. Are you the guy or not? That's a very tense moment. And you can see it in Jesus' response. Jesus says, the lowest ranking person in the kingdom will be greater than John. And John was the greatest of the old covenant saints. Go back and tell John what you see and hear, that the blind see, the deaf hear, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I think sometimes we miss the tension in the air as Jesus is basically rebuking his forerunner at that point. Not maybe rebuking him, but saying, let's get clear about what my mission is. My mission is to save the lost. My mission is not to restore the Sinai Covenant. My mission is not to baptize people for repentance. You yourself recognized early on, John, that my mission is to baptize people with the Spirit and with fire. I'm coming in judgment and deliverance. Now, the rest of the disciples show throughout the story that they're thinking on the same sheet of music that Jesus is coming to just replay the exodus from Egypt and the conquest of the Romans, driving them out of the land. And they ask that all the way up to the ascension of Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So I spend these first two chapters just pointing out how Jesus has to correct the interpretation of his own followers. And he still has to correct our interpretation today when we begin to think that what Jesus came to do was a geopolitical, you know, social justice thing, rather than a kingdom of grace that one day when he returns will become a kingdom of glory. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. When Martin Luther addressed these questions in the 16th century, he used a distinction between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. How does that distinction help us think about these issues now? Well, it has lots of implications for the way we think about the church and its ministry. This tendency to climb the ladder and touch God's face and through spiritual disciplines crawl inside ourselves and find Jesus there, or to ascend to try to pull him down by our clever worship services and by the whirl of all of our electricity in the room— or by crossing the seas to bring deliverance by imagining that we are redeeming the world by our social action. All of these are what Paul calls the righteousness which is by works, in Romans 10, 
contrasting that with the righteousness which is by faith. He says the righteousness which is by faith doesn't say, how can I go into the heavens to bring him down, or how can I go into the depths to bring him up from the dead? But it says he is as near as the word of Christ that we are preaching to you. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is how God comes to us. And that's a theology of the cross. Where do you find God? You always find God in the humble places. You find God where you least expect him. You find God in a manger, not in a palace. You find God hanging on a cross, not sitting on a throne. You find God in his most powerful reigning moments under the appearance of the exact opposite. That was Luther's point. And it's a point we desperately need to hear today. People are flocking to glory places when God actually has promised to show up in cross places, humble places, mangers, crosses, low people, not high people. You're not calling Christians to abandon God's world. This is God's world. You're distinguishing between what the visible institutional church should be doing and what Christians should be doing. Yeah. Just to be clear so that the listener understands, what is it, once more, I know you've spoken to this many times, but once more, what is it that the individual Christian should be doing as he or she engages the world? Everything that the Scriptures command. They're called to be parents. There are biblical teachings on what it means to be a parent, not to exasperate your child, to love your wife, for wives to submit to their husbands. You have teaching on employer-employee relationships. And then you have to, beyond that, use your common sense and your wisdom and the tools that you have in your own field. If you're an economist, the Bible doesn't teach you economics. You need to learn that. To execute your calling faithfully, to truly love and serve your neighbor, you need a biblical pair of glasses with which to view everything. But in terms of resources, you need a lot of secular wisdom as well. So there's a lot in all of our callings. We don't just have one calling. We have a lot of different callings. The church has one calling, to make disciples of all nations by word and sacrament and discipline. That is its calling. But Christians have lots of callings. And Christians can get together in groups. Christians can form committees for defense of life. Christians can form groups for the dispensing of private monies and goods and services for poor people, for women's shelters. Christians get together at World Vision every day and try to solve many of the world's crises for individual people around the world who are suffering desperately from malnutrition and poverty. Christians can bear witness to Christ in these ways. They can also bear witness to Christ simply by going to work every day and taking care of their own children and taking care of their elderly parents. They can love and serve their neighbors by working alongside non-Christians at a homeless shelter. Man, I mean, there are lots of places for us to be disciples. I like to say that the church is where disciples are made. The world is where discipleship goes. Disciples carry out or execute their discipleship in the world, not primarily in the church. 
and yet they're made in the church. And we're reversing that today so that we're becoming of the world and not in it because we are not receiving the means of grace clearly in many cases in the church because the church has become an alternative subculture for the world. And yet we're not really in the world because we're in this subculture. What I'm hoping and arguing for in this book is that we turn that around and because the church is doing what it's mandated to do, disciples are being made, not just once upon a time, but throughout their lives as Christians, disciples are being made and they are being set free to execute that discipleship, to play out and live out that discipleship in the world and not in church-related ministries. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.